This episode of Covenantal Apologetics is brought to you by Westminster Theological Seminary. Westminster seeks to form believers for gospel service, for teaching the whole counsel of God to shepherd Christ's church, and to engage a changing world with God's unchanging word through Reformed scholarship. You are listening to Covenantal Apologetics, a podcast for those seeking to engage non-Christian positions from a Christian presuppositional approach grounded in 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and respect. I'm your host, Patty Crown, here to discuss the unique challenges and opportunities for apologetics in the sciences. In his book, Covenantal Apologetics, professor and apologist Dr. K. Scott Oliphant writes, perhaps most threatening to some in our current day is the predominance, even near reverence, given to scientific knowledge and dogma. This is a distinctly modern phenomenon in that science itself, as we know, was birthed in the cradle of Christianity. But it is a phenomenon that is front and center in our culture and academia today. So it is likely one with which many Christians have struggled. With this as a backdrop, with me today to explore apologetics in the sciences are physicists Dan Carlson and Olivia Crown from the University of Colorado Boulder. Dan and Olivia, welcome. It's great to be here. Great to be here. I so appreciate you joining me. So before discussing the predominant worldview among scientists and the apologetic challenges and opportunities this presents, I want to begin with your personal journeys into the science world. So I'd love for you to introduce yourselves briefly by sharing what drew you into scientific discovery and maybe physics in particular. Yeah, I can start. Uh, Yeah. So like Patty said, I'm Dan Carlson. I'm a PhD candidate at University of Colorado. Um, I probably have been drawn towards the sciences since like middle school, I guess, like when science really started becoming like more, a little more like evolved and sophisticated, you know, like, you know, they actually let you hold a beaker and do cool stuff. And <laughs> I've always been drawn to it because it's like, it's more, it was kind of this field where you could ask the question why, and mm-hmm. it would lead, it would have an answer for you if yeah. you looked hard enough. And, long, and thought long enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that kind of is what always drew me towards it as an interest, and uh, say, even since I was little. Yeah, I'd say mine for me is very similar. I always liked asking the question why, and I always kind of wanted to figure out, you know, why things were the way they were, how they worked. I liked taking things apart and, and seeing all that was underneath it. And that just kind of translated into math and science as I got into high school, it just seemed to to really be a fun way to see kind of what was underlying different assumptions or different technology. And I just kind of from there really enjoyed studying, studying science. That's great. Well, and full disclosure, as Olivia's mom and former homeschool <laughs> teacher, I can remember just teaching you the, or attempting to teach you to memorize your times tables, uh-huh. in which you refused to memorize them until you understood them. And so we had hundreds of Unifix cubes laying all over the table till you could know why two times mm-hmm. two is four. And then it was nailed. I mean, once you, once you understood it, so should have uh-huh. known then we'd be having this conversation. Um, Along those lines though, Olivia, what role, if any, did Christianity play in your initial pursuit of science? Did it have a place? 
Yeah, I'd say initially, no. Um, I think initially kind of as, you know, a young kid going into kind of high school age, it was just another subject and it was a subject I happened to like and happened to be good at. And so in that sense, I kind of think I just, it was sort of compartmentalized in in the sense that any interest or pursuit is where it's just what you do and what you do to God's glory. Okay. So a piece of what you do for God's glory. Now, as you grew and, you know, into high school, undergrad, now post-grad, with increasing reverence in our context um, to scientific discovery, seemingly put science and faith at odds. What what inner conflicts have there been for you as a believer Mm -hmm. on holding to a Christian theism as a physicist? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And I think that's kind of one I wrestled with quite a lot in college because particularly in college, I started to understand a lot of the subtleties of, you know, what this, what is meant by scientific method and and what kind of identity um, a scientist places in in his or herself. And, and, you know, a lot of it is, you know, taking data and, and making conclusions and trusting your conclusions. And I think, Uh, particularly as I got older, I understood more of kind of this, the social context in which faith and any, any religion really seemed to be a conflict with each other. I had to deal with what does it mean to both have a, an identity as a Christian, but also an identity as a scientist. And for me, one of those, the big questions I had to wrestle with in terms with was kind of, was my faith in, in God and Christ in the Bible did I actually believe that, you know, there was no data I could find that would, you know, ever disprove God or disprove Christianity? Did I actually believe that God could call me to this profession and I could serve it faithfully without ever undermining myself? And that's kind of what I had to wrestle through and and come to the other side to believe that, um, that not only could I have both those identities, but that God was calling me to that. Wow. Were there moments when that was fearful at all? Like, where you thought, what if this unravels my childhood faith? What if, mm-hmm. or what if my love for science has to be, you know, pushed aside um, at, to be faithful as a believer? So was it fearful, anxious, or any? Yeah, um, I definitely had had moments of both, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of prayer and talking to wise people, and also just kind of passing through it. Yeah, persevering mm-hmm. and believing, and yeah, that's incredible. Um, well, I want to start looking at your scientific partners and their prevailing worldviews and how this creates some of this potential conflict for you. So let's dive deeper into the unique challenges for Christian scientists and, again, the worldview among your colleagues. What are the, the common or pervasive claims about faith versus science or faith or the relationship between the two? And what are the prevailing assumptions that are under those particular claims that you that you hear and wrestle out? So two very good questions. Yeah, two <laughs> very good questions. And it's hard. I mean, I want to avoid like generalizing too much because, you know, everyone has different things. And, mm-hmm. you know, our little slice of experience of the physics community might be different because we live in Boulder. You know, it's not necessarily representative of all physics departments across mm-hmm. all the U.S., but uh yeah, I mean, I think one of the big ones would be kind of this idea that they're incongruent things, that mm-hmm. faith, faith goes against this idea of, as a scientist, you're supposed to live in truth and objective, measurable data, and then mm-hmm. 
there's this kind of underlying feeling or assumption I feel when I interact with a lot of my colleagues that faith is just this totally opposite way of thinking mm -hmm. about things. Yeah, and I, you know, even just, there is some of the definition that is, it's tempting, I think it's complimentary, but that makes it tempting to think of it as odds in terms of, you know, faith as an element of believing what we haven't seen, whereas science, at least at, at, at the surface, proclaims to be faith only in what we have seen or, or measured in some way. I think one of the assumptions that goes under that is that, you know, if we can't explain everything in terms of what we see or can measure, if we can explain, you know, all these big questions with science, then if there's no need for any further, then nothing further will exist. Wow. That's not true of all scientists, but that's probably kind of the prevailing mm -hmm. general feeling. And I appreciate you, Dan, mentioning, you know, that it varies from in, in different contexts and to not paint with a broad brush. Um, I'm sure you're seeing specific trends, especially within literature and that kind of bring a bit of a cohesive idea to some, some larger claims about the relationship between science and faith. Um, but when you're talking about your context, Boulder and the physics department at the University of Colorado, how, how have you discerned the worldview or the specific claims of those that you get to work side by side with. So as you don't, so you don't paint them with a broad brush. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes out, I'd say like the most illuminating would be mostly roommates. When you live with someone, mm -hmm. like in a roommate type of situation, it's really easy to over, you know, you get all the small talk out of the way. Mm -hmm. And then you eventually start talking about, you know, more mm -hmm. your worldviews on things. And I feel like that's, mm -hmm. that was, that's been, that was a very big illuminator. Once you kind of have an inkling, it's easier to then mm -hmm. look at conversations you might have more lighter hearted on hikes, mm -hmm. on runs, you know, over lunch, you know, mm -hmm. meets with your other colleagues and you can kind of start picking up on trends, I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Would you say the same, Olivia, or do you have anything? you want to add to that? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say the same. I think relationally is where a lot of that comes out. How we treat people, what we talk about in terms of the social situations we're, we're living in or how we're reacting to political climate and stuff. That's where conversations about where people are actually at, you know, emotionally and such, you start to get a much clearer picture of, of how they're interpreting more impactful things. You probably even discover that some of the things they claim to believe they don't necessarily put into practice, like all of us, you know, as you get to know people one-on-one -on -one and you get to see a little bit more along those lines, what have been some misconceptions maybe about Christianity that they've maybe felt like they could voice with you or, or once they discover that you are a believer have shared with you, have there been some that have, have impacted your relationship with your colleagues? Yeah, this is a tough one. I feel like most of the assumptions or misconceptions are never really confessed to. They're more, sometimes you pick up on them more because you realize you've challenged an expectation. I think maybe there's a bit there in terms of most scientists don't really expect Christians to be thinking people. They, there's kind of a painted like live, live the same way all your generations have lived and, you know, don't believe in science and just sort of this very closed off, very stereo, very stereotypical, uh, derogatory picture. And so 
you already know someone, you've already had good conversations with them, and then they find out you're a Christian, sometimes you can get, get a, a bit of an eyebrow raise, which is perhaps some assumptions being challenged. And probably which ones people are making is probably pretty specific to the people and the things that maybe have have rubbed them the wrong way around about Christianity. Yeah, and I would even say what I experienced through getting to know my colleagues has been sometimes it's not even misconceptions about Christianity. Sometimes it's true statements that you know on the surface, if you don't really understand the mm. full gospel, they sound harsh. I, I know. I I had one old roommate who was really hung up on the idea that Christianity is exclusive. The idea that mm -hmm. if you believe Jesus is the only way, then you're, you, you are in a way making a statement on Hinduism and Buddhism. Yeah. And that's a large percentage of the population. And it's, it's hard to say that's a misconception, but right. I think the misunderstanding is more so in the, you know, not getting the full picture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And that those have been tie together almost in the sense of Christianity is actually reasonable. Like you actually reason. It's mm -hmm. not blind faith. There, there right. is evidence for what we believe, um, both internally in our conscience, as well as externally in all of creation, but that it is a reasonable faith, not right. a blind faith. That seems to be re regardless of the discipline or the area of, of the world we live in, probably. Yeah. But how have you kind of in line with that question, though, how have you seen the church harm your apologetic efforts? You know, what kind of bridge building, Olivia, you kind of mentioned this a little bit about talking about causes and politics, but what kind of bridge building do you see is needed to promote a more positive view of Christianity as culture building, as about human flourishing, not exclusive to just be judgmental, but potentially the exclusive nature of Christianity is also because that's how humans flourish is the truth. So what have you seen as far as ways you can, that are needed to bridge build? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And I feel like it's very intertwined into a space beyond necessarily scientific, mm -hmm. you know, arenas. Because there's maybe a historical influence of the church in terms of pitting science and religion against each other, like kind of a backlash to say Darwin, that has mm -hmm. set the stage for a battle. And maybe that's one thing specific to our context. But honestly, it seems like a lot of the barriers are m much more the same as they are outside the sciences, where it's about, you know, social social beliefs or or politics or you know personal things that people people hold onto and against Christianity. Mm -hmm. Especially if you talk about Darwinism, you can make an argument that the whole schism over the idea of how old is the Earth and science says one thing and the interpretation of the Bible for some people says something else and that's harmed things because then you have people who are proclaimed scientists who believe the truth that they then view Christianity like you said earlier as this unreasonable faith mm -hmm. or something and that's that's for ways to then bridge them mm -hmm. that I don't know I think that probably when I hear that kind of question it makes me think of kind of broader issues in in modern discourse of not mm. listening fully mm -hmm. to the to the other sides i mean because it's yeah. both ways right for every time you have someone who's a self-proclaimed intellectual scientist who won't listen to the full of the gospel you have people mm -hmm. who are self-proclaimed christians who don't listen to the full testimony of mm -hmm. people who, mm -hmm. who you know yeah yeah so i guess bringing that into bridge building probably i would say relationships are by far the most important because mm -hmm. I think this is 
kind of talking off of what Dan was talking about, modern discourse is so easy to kind of have these echo chambers where we're only talking with people we agree with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the issue with getting to know people you disagree with is it's much harder to disagree with them when you respect them as a person and you have a, a, a solid relationship that, you know, is able to share some of the things you care about or that are on your heart. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of one thing to have a friend in our program that is kind of almost baited us with with political things they know we disagree with. But another thing when they then also let you pray for them when they're going through something. Mm-hmm. And I think that when, when people want to believe it's science versus religion or, or whatever, two things pitted against each other, it's, it definitely muddies the water when you have a real relationship that is allowed to show you what, what it actually means to be a Christian. That's yeah. where I feel we're kind of blessed in that sense and the ability to call ourselves Christian scientists because we kind of get our foot in the door for both people who believe that kind of divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, gives them pause both directions. So when we're talking, engaging with mm-hmm. our colleagues and they're mm-hmm. when they, they know us as scientists first, as right. colleagues first, and even people that we, you know, have studied with and they know we're like mm-hmm. we're capable people. And then when we find out we're Christians that kind of we can't just discard everything. And then likewise, you know, I know I have family members who kind of view kind of intellectualism, like mm-hmm. scientists, liberal college areas, and then they disregard it, but then they know me. Right. as a kid mm-hmm. grew up and liked mm-hmm. me and then, so you kind of get your foot in the door both it's, ways it's true if there are different groups that believe you don't exist <laughs> <laughs> yeah then just being there you have to challenge some assumptions and build some bridges right yeah and the, ultimately that that bridge is that we're all human you know we yeah. share the human condition and that kind of transitions to kind of the next direction i want to go within this category is is, is that sense of the divine that, you know, us being created in the image of God. So, you know, based on the authority of God's word, especially highlighted in Romans one, all people know the true God. There's a sense of the divine, John Calvin called it, where we not only see it, see God shout his glory in creation, but he has also given man a sense of that, of who he is, a knowledge a knowledge of God that entails a covenantal obligation. And so unbelievers suppress this truth with what is false. Um, and since any suppression of truth is an antithesis to what is true, it is unable to support itself. So that's how we begin these great conversations of point of contact. And But with this idea as a backdrop, I want to ask Dan you a question. Mm-hmm. In seeking to engage uh, the worldviews of unbelieving colleagues, through relationships, through dignity, gentleness, respect. What have been some common naggings among maybe those roommates that that some unsatisfied desires or unanswered questions that are openings for them to see that maybe their worldview can't hold its own, that there there is a sense of it being a bit of sinking sand? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really good question. And I wish I could identify that better, I feel like, you know, that's probably where I need to grow as kind of the missionary part of my brain and how I live my life and how I Mm -hmm. listen to others. Um, I do feel like it seems it's really hard to detect those kind of nagging, especially in the scientific community, Mm -hmm. because there's Mm -hmm. this idea that you, just because when you're, when you're a scientist, you know, you have your identity is there, especially if you're not a Christian. So you're putting your whole who you are as a person into this idea mm-hmm. that you're smart, that you know how things work and 
-hmm. you're not, you know, you only believe in data. You're not going to be fooled by subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And when you have people with these kind of guarded ideas on their intellectualism, I, I think it takes a certain amount of humbleness to admit naggings in the worldview. Mm -hmm. If anything, Good I point. see a lot of, I see a lot of more, um, confidence in mm -hmm. worldviews and mm -hmm. where you know if you read apologetics it's really i can see where there maybe is inconsistencies as someone who's a christian and you listen to people talk but i never have really picked up many times where they see it themselves mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. usually it's very this is what i believe this is true mm -hmm. i mm -hmm. can't you know they don't admit anything you know mm -hmm. you know so is it fair to say that you can see them? Maybe there's things that they they claim they're satisfied with and yet you can sense it, but it's not necessarily what they would admit. Or do you even see like, you know, inconsistencies in what they say versus how they live, but that would be more confrontative versus mm -hmm. them disclosing it on their own? Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. And I think it's, and I only can say that I can maybe, I mean, you know, and that's where it's like, I can't really know for sure. I'm just, you know, someone who's not, mm -hmm. I'm just an observer, but I can just try to, I can identify with some things because I kind of went through that process. Mm -hmm. Someone who came to Colorado and entered the PhD program as a non-believer and then became a Christian. I can kind of retroactively see the things I wasn't seeing in myself mm -hmm. a few years ago. And then it's therefore I can kind of see it in some of my people who have similar kind of backgrounds or and like mm -hmm. a big one for me would be the kind of that idea of you wanting to to put value into things and doing that in a way by like trying to have the hold the idea that there's objective mm -hmm. value in people and ideas and you know social justice and human mm -hmm. dignity, mm -hmm. but then throw away the things that give you that object objective value. Like mm -hmm. I don't believe in any kind of God. I think we're mm -hmm. there's nihilistic ideas or we're just these things on a rock and mm -hmm. you know. Like I've seen that in myself and have come to realize them, but I think, yeah, I don't see it really self-professed as much. And, you know, that's great. That's helpful. That's really helpful. And I want to ask you, follow up on that a little bit later, a little bit more on your own journey and kind of how this whole apologetics played out in your own life and your own conversion. I was also wondering if there might be, as we talked about specific areas and, and, and disciplines like science, wondering even how, working among millennials might be some opportunities, what we would call points of contact, where, where, where there's common causes or concerns we have, where Christian theism actually has answers and hope, but other belief systems don't. Have you, have you seen some things specific to just good op, you know, opportunities and challenges related to your particular generation, millennials, in the science world especially? I can I can answer on that because I was actually talking along these lines with my roommate this week mm -hmm. and we we had concluded and she's she's not a Christian but we had both concluded that our gener our generation doesn't seem to think or like to talk about this very much hmm. in the sense of I I would observe that most people take for granted that they they know or don't need to think deeply about answers to kind of these big questions. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think I tend to get excited whenever conversation tends to turn towards these, you know, bigger, you know, why are mm -hmm. we here? Is, is there a God? What's our purpose? Is there objective truth? Because I don't feel like people enjoy just talking about these things, like perhaps other generations or other cultures have. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think we like to take for granted that those are already solved and we're just going to live kind of in the here and now with the results of it. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. Yeah, I, I wondered, I thought, I, I just think there's so many incredible things to, you know, you hate to stereotype even millennials and other generations, but there does seem to be a disenchantment with secularism. And so there's a there's that opportunity that you may have that maybe I wouldn't have had in the nineties, you know, where everything goes and everything's fine. Everybody can believe what they want. You know, there's, there's just, there's a, there's a little bit of both judging what is good and true and right with, with social justice being part of that, but also, yeah, just just some neat opportunities. Um, So I want to transition into that, the apologetic challenges and then the opportunities. I want to explore those a little bit further. So Dan, you'd mentioned when you entered the university of Colorado for your doctorate, you were not a believer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so as we presented it, apologetics is not an argument, at, um, at least covenantal apologetics, it, but it's persuasion that taps into a, a knowledge of God that we are given um, by being created in his image. And it's a knowledge that's suppressed and covenantal apologetics is seeking to demonstrate how Christian, how Christianity subversively fulfills what all other worldviews cannot fulfill. So with this in mind, I want to ask Olivia a question, actually. So getting to know Dan, um, what doctrines of Christianity, I mean, he kind of gave us a hint earlier, what kind of doctrines of Christianity did you sense would be relevant Mm -hmm. to him being persuaded that Christianity is ultimately the truth he seeks? And maybe this was you discerning or you sensing what the Holy Spirit was working on in him, but what, what part of Christianity did you sense would be most relevant in Dan being persuaded by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I know there are a couple of kind of things that really stuck out to me with him that seemed that seemed inconsistent or it seemed like the Holy Spirit was already doing partial work. And one of those things were kind of the awe he had for just, you know, nature. And, mm. you know, there have been comments on like how gorgeous the stars were and how small they always make you feel. And mm. things that kind of made me think of like, Wow. Just kind of that sense of something bigger. Other things were really his respect for people and and value of people because they are people. And this kind of this almost Mm. the sense of this, this theology of the Imago Dei without, without actually believing that necessarily God existed and a lot of his worldview of how people ought to, how to behave kind of really seemed consistent with with a theistic worldview, even though he didn't profess one, mm-hmm. which kind of made me think maybe there was kind of already maybe some inner conflict or, or some specific things that needed that, you know, God was pressing in on. Mm-hmm. That. I love Olivia that you actually identified the good that you were seeing versus maybe just how he was unhappy about something or how something wasn't satisfying him. You were actually looking at where he had awe. And it doesn't surprise me knowing you all these years, Missy, that you looked in the, you watched for the positive where God was already at work and wanted to kind of join what God was doing and the ways in which Dan reflected that he hadn't even um, confessed. I think that's, that's just beautiful. Um, Learning from your experience with Dan and other, and other colleagues, and you've kind of touched on this, but see if you have a little bit more for me. So learning from your experience with Dan and other colleagues, what do you find is most effective in defending your faith or commending Christianity? 
That's a hard one because it it really is is very different for different people. And maybe that is one of the takeaways is mm, good. Know, there, uh, a level of, you know, apologetics and understanding, you know, that Christianity is, is a reasonable, it was a reasonable faith and that there's kind of some misconceptions to work through, but, but by and large, I mean, there's kind of always places in the human heart where we know what we ought to believe and, and either we believe it and it's not consistent with how we're living or what else we believe, or we know what we ought to believe and yet we don't. Mm. And I think there's always those places where the the truth is is stamped on us but it has it has kind of yet to come to come to fruition and i think that's very different for different people the things that people are okay with intellectual disobedience from god in the places that they aren't are always very different but mm-hmm. starting from those points and kind of asking deeper questions of like why do you why do you feel that way like mm-hmm. what is behind that i think can be really helpful what do you find as far as are our people intrigued by your life and your relationships? And is that because you both had mentioned that, you know, relationship is, is massive to, yeah. to intelligent evangelism, apologetics. So I'm imagine, you know, integrity, convictions, all those things. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that is I mean, I guess I'm now I'm putting words in your mouth. So, so much, so much for being a good podcast interviewer. But, um, you know, the the idea of learning, earning a right to be heard. You know, seeking common ground, thinking for yourself. I'll just make a statement. I think just as an encouragement to you both, I love that you are not typecasts. Um, you could not be typecast believers. That you guys do think outside of any kind of perceived Christian Christian norm and you're looking at issues specifically, even when we look at politics. And I imagine that would be effective in defending your faith too, that you're thinking for yourself. You're not falling in line, as Dan said, you're kind of, there's dismay for those who think, what, what's he doing in science? And those in the science are like, what's he doing with Jesus? You know, there's dismay on both ends. And then something else you mentioned earlier too, Olivia, is being a co-belligerent, being, being unhappy about wrongs that non-believers are unhappy about, mm-hmm. you know, social justice issues, having those. So just watching you two, it's, it's such a, it's just such a joy to watch how you think individually. And you've been mentioning this all along. You think in, about individually about issues, but you also think individually about people um, that you're really prayerful and careful about what the Lord would have for you. So, all right, here we are, Dan, <laughs> I want you to excri- describe your own experience now of being persuaded by the Holy spirit, that the claims of Christianity are true and that God is creator and redeemer. And what role did Olivia and other thinking Christians play in your repentance um, from sin and faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot in that question. Uh, yeah. It's not like, uh, you know, Christianity was this foreign thing. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's probably common with a lot of people who grew up in America. Like I, I grew up having gone to churches a handful of times and throughout my life. Mm-hmm. So it was never something that was completely foreign to me. And then I think, especially listening to Olivia's answer, it's kind of interesting because I can like, oh yeah, that's a good point. The idea that like, especially, you know, in the way these questions are worded with that really emphasis on the idea that Romans passage that the word is written on on the hearts and it's just the suppression looking back you know I would never I would you would never have had me say I never like I believed 
thought didn't exist growing up. Like, I think I was always on the more agnostic standpoint of, I don't know if I can know. And so I kind of avoided really engaging intellectually or engaging my heart. Those kind of questions of who is Jesus? Like, what is sin? Are we sinners? Those kind of things Mm -hmm. for most of my life. And, you know, I think there's also that, especially, you know, as I became, became a scientist, like all these things that we're talking about that maybe we see in our colleagues. I mean, I was right there feeling the same things and modern culture kind of gives you this impression that the faith and science are incompatible. And so I kind of see that and think, oh, well, you know, why even bother, you know, spending all this time reading all these books on apologetics or reading the Bible just to find inconsistencies at some point. So mm-hmm. why ask the question and kind of discouraged myself before I really even gave myself the chance to be inquisitive, which I feel like is basically now, like in hindsight, now that you've had that yeah, response, that idea that that is basically mm-hmm. of the word that was, that was on my heart. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, coming to Boulder, you know, getting to know Olivia, you know, she was great, inviting me to church one and or whatever. And, you know, I, of course, that's easy for me because I had been, going, been accepting invites to church my whole life. I think it's always kind of a, you know, fun place mm-hmm. to be at and went to church, started going kind of regularly and then joined a Bible study to kind of ask, because it's very interesting. I started getting a little more curious and, you know, I show up to that first uh, Bible study group and it was, it was like eight dudes and they were all graduate students in, mm-hmm. in in a STEM field of some sort. And, uh, you know, that's like the first time that it struck me that this there's a lot, like, you know, Christians can be scientists. And, and Even in Colorado. In Colorado, <laughs> right. And, you know, like one of our first books we were reading when I joined was they were in, either in the middle or, you know, after a couple of months, we had started reading Near Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which is, you know, this great kind of intro apologetics book it doesn't get too like you know logical argument heavy but it's very you know much lays out things Mm -hmm. and yeah kind of just the opening up of the realization that okay you know there's people that that have these two ideas together Mm -hmm. maybe it's okay to ask these questions and so I feel like it was just kind of a long journey to go from maybe what's been in my heart for a long time to finally letting my brain kind of talk to it and Mm -hmm. figuring things out and here I am Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing mm-hmm. just to hear any story of, of faith is, is beautiful, but thanks. Thank you for sharing that. How has your conversion impacted your science or has it not your approach to your approach to scientific discovery, your, your mm-hmm. work in your lab? It's definitely impacted my relationships with people in those labs, which, you know, mm-hmm. is not zero part of our mm-hmm. day-to-day life, working definitely. with lab mates, working with postdocs. Yeah being Mm -hmm. easier to have grace for people (laughs) yeah I mean that's all very big and which I'm sure has helped me as a scientist easier to make friends Mm -hmm. understand people and work with people communicate and I feel like the heart of the question though is probably more so the idea of taking data and analyzing Mm -hmm. it and being Mm -hmm. afraid of what I might measure one day Mm -hmm. that was something that I feel like early on when I started going to bible study was on my mind and I was quick to kind of feel out is this something that everyone else struggles with or are they people that are afraid and I think I've quickly kind of realized and been talking with other with with the other um, graduate students that I think it kind of makes it's a statement on your faith if you're worried about what you might discover the idea that I wouldn't pursue a project or perform an experiment that 
could or could not invalidate my faith says something about my belief that my faith could be invalidated by something I do in lab. And mm-hmm. so I think from that standpoint, I was never really, I don't think it's really mm-hmm. changed too much. If anything, it's made me a little more, I don't, I mean, our, my work doesn't really overlap with these kind of questions you would mm-hmm. really find about mm-hmm. physics, but in terms of even just reading scientific papers and understanding scientific data, if anything, it's more of an excitement of understanding how God has worked. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Isn't that great? And just even seeing the relationship between scientific discovery and God's grace and whether it is lasers or whether it is materials in space. See if I mm-hmm. summarize what you two do very well, but um, <laughs> just knowing that evidence is dependent upon divine action. And so I would imagine it kind of becomes exciting to see what mm-hmm. God's going to uncover and let you discover and then, and then how that's going to be used for common good. So on a personal note, you two, less than a hundred days, you'll be getting married. I know. How has your relationship been an apologetic in the sciences and there in Boulder? Has it been? Do Are people curious? I mean, my, my experience from talking to both of you is that uh, most colleagues who are in a relationship are living together mm-hmm. rather than getting married. And so just even the fact that you aren't living together, that you are, you are, you are having a wedding and a, you know, what has that brought up questions, opportunities, curiosities. Hmm. I haven't gotten any questions. It's definitely been noticed. Yeah. (laughs) The attention there, you know, like the fact that my roommates all spend nights at girlfriends places and every night I'm home or, you know, Olivia's leaving. You know, I, I, they obviously notice that we have mm-hmm. dif- we live differently than they do, and that's mm-hmm. a good thing, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that's yeah. that's almost mm-hmm. like what we're called to do in a way. But it I is think what we're called to do. But, but well, you know, <laughs> like like in a way to in a way of being like using it almost as a, a, a so conversation starter. Even. Yeah, yeah, as a way yeah. to actually you know a part of a part of way of like a, a fraction of being missional is, is living out your faith and mm-hmm. that speaking that volumes mm-hmm. even what you don't say. Yeah, but I I've no, I think there's also like a fear of asking. I don't know. You know what I mean? You know, there must some people be. don't want to open up the can of yeah. worms of yeah. What? You know. Do you wonder if they have a sense of wondering what you're thinking about their relationships and sexual purity, things like that? Do you think it's or just yeah? Mm-hmm. I would just imagine it would be because I remember even 30 years ago among my non-believing friends, you know, maybe your dad and I were an anomaly, and so. In, and we weren't, well, he's, he's in the medical field, but I wasn't. And so, yeah, I just think it would be an interesting, I remember being apologetic even then, what the value of marriage is and why we would, um, the dignity part of sexual purity. And mm-hmm. um, so I was just wondering if that's been much of an apologetic for you. And you're on the beginning stages of that too, getting into early marriage. It's going to be exciting to see how the Lord, so I would imagine there's probably more curiosity and conversations than you, than you know, but they're probably talking about it with probably, each other, just yeah. not with us. How are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Yeah. <laughs> but it's got to be intriguing, especially to those that the Lord is drawing, like you said, Olivia, to those that, that the spirit is already drawing to himself. There's, I would imagine there's an attraction to like, what does this mean? And um, so anyway, just just curious and wanted to see if I can make you blush. 
So William Edgar was, was our, our, our lecturer. Um, he's a professor of apologetics at Westminster, and he contends that Christianity is not only worthy of defense, but capable of defense and commendation in an age where challenges are more and more daunting. Um, but clearly, uh, end quote, but clearly it's, it's a risk. You know, we're risk takers to follow Jesus in any field. You know, we are promised that we will be insulted for our faith, attacked, and even persecuted. So as we wrap up here, as a Christian scientist, what are the risks for you? Have you, have you sensed risks for defending and commending Christianity? I think, I think there kind of always is a bit of a risk that you'll discount it or lose some credibility just because of those assumptions. And maybe the risks, you know, are not so great with peers, with people you can start with relationships and then they kind of have to fit in in your faith with other things but definitely there can be a greater risk with like your superiors you know mm -hmm. the idea of you know there's these situations where you're called to defend your faith and kind of put yourself out there in in peers but you know I've never had something like that happen in like a lab group meeting but I can only imagine that that would be significantly more intense and possibly a lot more costly. And so I think there, there is risks just because there are, there's a variety of assumptions in terms of scientists actually believe you can't be a scientist and a Christian. Some people believe that some don't, but you're never quite sure until you're in those situations. And so I think, I think there definitely can be a risk of kind of losing your entire platform and credibility. And that hasn't happened to me in any scenarios, but it's kind of one of those things that always, always is a possibility and can kind of always turn your career in a direction you didn't know God wanted it to go. So, you know, it can happen. I just alluded to that with that last phrase, what's your hope in that? Like, how do you, how do you persevere with your conviction? Mm -hmm. And I think in that is, is the hope that you're exactly where God called you to be, mm -hmm. you know, that, that mm -hmm. this in and of itself is a missions field. And God will take you off it when it's time for you to be off it. And if he hasn't taken you off of it yet and you still feel called to be there, then it's time to continue to, to be a witness. And, and it's so encouraging too that that first Peter verse that is classic passage on apologetics is in the context of suffering. So to me, I, that, I find that comforting when I have to, when I know I'm out of my comfort zone with, with peers or others who don't believe that this giving an account for the hope that is within me is in the midst of potentially being insulted for my faith, you know? So even, even in the process of how you handle that insult or that attack or that, if it goes that far persecution, how you handle that itself is a opportunity to defend, you know, and to trust that God is sovereign, which is what you alluded mm -hmm. to Olivia. Along those lines, my last big question is, well, second to last, what are you learning about hope? And gentleness and respect when it comes to defending your faith or what have you learned? I think at least in terms of, of gentleness and respect, I kind of think of listening and really hearing people out because mm -hmm. I think, I think it's tempting to have kind of your preset questions and answers. Like here's your, here's your one line retort to someone's logical fallacy. But I mean, usually what's, what's behind any one's need for, for hope in the gospel is something much deeper than a one line comeback. And so I think really listening to people and hearing them out, even if you're already hearing all the problems with what they believe, listening mm -hmm. all the way and really 
respecting and understanding where they're coming from and why they believe that not only kind of gives them dignity and dignity to their story, mm-hmm. but it helps you understand where God knows that is calling you to respond. I love that. That's great. Did you have something you wanted to add, Dan, to that one? Defending the hope within you with gentleness and respect? Yeah, I think especially as I've, because I think I was drawn to apologetics from the beginning as like a, you know, a really way to help me learn my faith and everything. And I feel like uh, in the same way that people who are very intellectual will quickly defend themselves from an atheistic standpoint or an agnostic standpoint, if you're too quick to jump in on the other side, it's just not really discourse. And I think, you know, as much as I think that's like the common idea with apologetics, it's like if you, the apologetics never really saves anybody. Mm-hmm. It's really just like, like we started talking about in the beginning, it's more of just a, an opening or a mm-hmm. tool used. Mm-hmm. And that requires a way of listening, a way of being mm-hmm. gentle, a way of being humble yourself and open-minded and kind and listening to the person. And then usually we'll find that it's not even some sort of logical argument that's really preventing mm-hmm. someone from, mm-hmm. from, from finding Jesus. It's something, you know, in the heart really deep mm-hmm. down. Yeah, absolutely. It made, it made me think of, you mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, and he was not a fan, although his writings are very apologetic. He, yeah, he didn't think apologetics was a good idea. He thought it was wearying to the faith. So I think that's the kind of apologetics you're talking about, where we're uh, constantly trying to argue, defend, come from a place of we have we are standing on an authority. It's not our own. Mm-hmm. It's the creator and redeemer's authority. And we can trust his spirit to do that work. So it just kind of free you to be gentle and respectful. And, and I just love how what keeps surfacing among our conversation is where is God already at work in their, in their heart, in their life? And how do we just really care for people and earn, earn the right to share the hope that is within us? And so, and this kind of is where we're going to kind of land the plane. Edgar also summarizes that apologetics is ultimately about the glory of God, not argument. I love that. And it is a spiritual discipline. Considering that observation, how has defending or commending your faith fanned your own affections for Christ? Something that struck me early on, uh, I forget who said it. It was There's a podcast out there by a guy who I believe used to be a crime detective. Hmm. LA or New York and really got into apologetics and does apologetics now since converting to Christianity and so he had this he has this cool podcast about apologetics and stuff but like one of the first episodes was the idea of as a sports fan I can name everyone on the 40-man roster of the Atlanta Braves and I can't take an argument past oh read the bible mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact so much detail into these things that don't matter mm-hmm. And so I feel like if anything, it just challenges me to, you know, really, add, I mean, it's, it's basically just kind of like meditating in a way on God's word, just curious, inquisitive, mm-hmm. wondering mm-hmm. why God would do something here or, you know, yeah. and, and seeing God's glory in that really helps, helps me grow in my faith every time. I feel like. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Olivia? Yeah, I think when, when you are having deeper or more meaningful conversations with people, I think there can be a, a dual effect of both even being, you know, daily in the word, daily thinking about things that matter. I think kind of touching base back to these really fundamental questions is kind of a, a return to the gospel, which is mm-hmm. is always refreshing. Mm-hmm. And I think beyond that, you know, when we're having discourses with people, you're definitely 
putting yourself socially on the line for something you believe. And I think the, the more you do that, the more you're investing yourself in it. And Mm -hmm. I think in many ways, a lot of our spiritual disciplines are larger investments of ourselves in in the gospel and in following Christ. Mm -hmm. That's so good. It's so true that whatever we really invest, our heart becomes affectionate for. And I would say just watching you two and getting to know Dan these last couple of years too, when you see God work and draw a person and you, and you've gotten to be, you've got to be part of it or your daughter gets to be part of it. It really does continue to remind you that what we believe is reasonable and it is truth and it is authoritative and it leads to human flourishing and satisfies that covenantal obligation that we have before, before God. And what an incredible gift we have in Jesus Christ that God would condescend to give us his son. So yeah, I could see where like prayer, Bible reading, all of it, defending your faith strengthens your faith and then getting to see God at work on top of that, see him do things that you didn't imagine. Pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to end by praying for you too. Can I pray for you? That'd be great. Sure. I love. So one of the things that spurred on the idea for this podcast was really recognizing that, like you had said, Dan, some well-meaning Christians just are afraid of science and they pull back out of it. Others go into science to be argumentative and, and angry. And, and, but there's a third way and that's to, to be excellent in the sciences and to, to have an opportunity to, to share the gospel intelligently. And I immediately thought of you too and thought this is what I would want to uncover more is, is your world. So thank you for, thank you for inviting me and all of our listeners into your world. And um, I hope we've been given a lot to pray for, for you, but I'll, I'll close this in prayer too. So thank you for the world in which you have placed us in this moment of time for such a time as this. And I thank you for Dan and Olivia and for the place you have them at the university of Colorado in Boulder. Father, I thank you for having the plan for them to be in the sciences and to discover who you are and how you are at work and the beauty of how you set this world in motion and sustain it and are bringing all things to completion. I do pray that the the joy of their scientific world, um, their scientific endeavors would be the joy of you and that would be contagious. Um, Father, I pray for opportunities to see where you are at work in their colleagues and to be able to give a defense for the hope that is within them to any who ask and with gentleness and respect. Thank you for their time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again, guys. Thank you.